This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the podcast you decided to listen to. My name is Matt Wolf, and I'll be your host. Our topic for this episode is Decision Scale. And with me this time are two designers who might feel they made a poor decision being on this episode by the time we're done. First up is Graham Allen. Hey, Graham. <laughs> Hi, Matt. <laughs> and also with us is the one, the only, Josh Mills. How's everybody doing out there? I'm doing good. We're about to make some decisions. That's <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna regret the decision of having me on this episode. That's my <laughs> it's, well, that's every time. So yeah, <laughs> that's that's probably fair. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, before we move into our first segment, let's also say congratulations to Josh because by the time this episode comes out, his wife will probably have had a baby, and you'll never hear from Josh ever again for the next five years. So, nope, that's it. I'm going to be gone after that. Yep. So that's what we figure. <laughs> nice yeah. knowing you. <laughs> yeah. So this is your your last uh, episode. So make it a good one. All right, so first segment that we always move into is the What's in the Oven segment. And so, Josh, let's stick with you. What have you been working on lately? First of all, that is a that is a fantastic transition right there. Well, we're going, going from pregnancy to what's in the oven. I, I, uh, I am a professional, so. <laughs> <laughs> all hail Matt. Went to Gen Con, uh, got a couple playtests in, and designed a game while I was there. Backlot, my movie-making game, got to play it with a couple other designers and moved it forward. The group helped me get in a place that I could actually put it on the table and people wouldn't immediately be like, this is a broken mess. Instead, they were like, these parts are really cool, but you know you have to fix all these other things. Which I already knew because I didn't really do any balancing. I just made up numbers for things. And it turns out they're not perfect. And then I also designed a game while I was at Gen Con called Fashionista, which is basically just a cards with numbers type game. But you're on like Rodeo Drive and you're setting trends and you're being super cool walking around. One of the things I did, and this would actually be kind of neat that other people could try, is instead of putting like one through six on the cards, I put the dice faces. Because I was like, maybe I want to use dice, maybe I don't. So I printed all these cards, having no idea how the game would work and just kind of sculpted the game out of the cards and components I made. So that was like a new, new way to create something. Other than that, just waiting for a human baby to be out here and take care of it. <laughs> <laughs> Related to what you said about Gen Con and like you know people playtesting, focusing on the numbers. So I playtested Split the Loot at Gen Con, and one of the feedback was, "Yeah, yeah, these numbers on on uh, one of the cards, these aren't really these aren't right." And I'm, like that's good feedback to have, but part of me is like, I don't really care yet, you know, because balancing is the last thing you do about I need to get the other pieces working. So it just surprised me like how much people would focus on like, you know, this number isn't right and this number isn't right and things like that. Uh, I, I probably should have said in the beginning of the playtest, hey, don't worry about, you know, the numbers of things. I They're not right. And I, sh- I should have set that uh, expectation next time. Uh, Graham, what have you been working on? Well, I've been working on Lightspan more, getting uh, closer, I think, getting some good feedback, getting some good ideas, currently stuck, which is always fun, working on trying to make it so that people don't know who's going to win, and that is proving to be something that makes a game good when you when you can't tell halfway through who's won already. 
And then the other thing I've been working on is uh, a new thing that is being called Triple Lutz at the moment. I'm working on it with Josh, actually. What? <laughs> Did you know about that? I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> it's a ice skating game with uh, tile laying, and at the moment, it kind of uh, it has too much stuff in it. We ha- we just have too many wonderful, amazing ideas that could be like seven different games. And have to uh, have to pull that back. The key there, though, is that Triple Lutz has tiles, and the tiles form snowflakes. That's all you need to know. And that's that. I mean, we're basically going to ship with that. We'll just figure out the rest. Yeah, Graham said ice skating, but he meant figure skating. So yeah, he meant figure skating. Yeah, yeah, it's a very specific type of uh, ice skating, of course. And... I'm getting into things in things with outfits, fashionista, figure skating. <laughs> Anything where you could dress. I'm having a little girl. There's a lot of pink around. I don't know how I'm being influenced, but it's happening. I think we know exactly how you're being influenced. Yeah. Focusing on, on uh, you know, things you've never focused on before. Okay. All right. So let's go into our main topic for this episode, and that is decision scale. So this is a term that we kind of invented, I think, because I couldn't really find this exact term doing some uh, Googling. And so let's explain what we mean by decision scale. So uh, decision scale is the number of different factors a player has to take into account in order to make an in-game decision, as well as the different scales, which is personal, adjacent, and global, that the player uh, must consider. And of course, that's going to lead us to what is personal, adjacent, and global. So I think personal, that's probably pretty obvious, right? Like That's what's going to directly affect me. And if you have a game that's, I don't know, like a Tableau Builder, for example, that would be, what am I adding into my Tableau? That'd be personal. Global is also probably pretty uh, obvious. That's going to be, how is this affecting everyone in the game? And that could be, if we'd use an example like San Juan, that would be, what power am I, or what role am I taking this round? And that's going to affect everyone else. Adjacent, I think, this one might be a little bit more difficult to kind of explain and i'm curious what did you guys think adjacent meant so josh did you have an idea i I, to me it's how is it going to relate to maybe a specific player or specific say track on the board something like mumbasa if i do this and move this up it's only affecting these two people now that is it's global but to me it's also adjacent because it's relative to the other players actions how about you graham is that what you were thinking or do you have something different Similar, I had actually thought of the Manhattan Project as as the big example with each individual person's player board and basically their tableau in front of them. So since the tableaus, since I can go play on other players' buildings, it is still semi-global, but since they can play on it easier, it, it is not the same thing as, as, the, as the full on board would be. Yeah, I, I think... Sort of on purpose, adjacent is slightly uh, amorphous, so it could mean different things in different contexts. And I think one really uh, obvious example that makes a lot of sense is Seven Wonders, where you're going to be not only passing cards to the player on your left or right, depending on the round, but you will also most likely be considering military strength against your neighbor's. Uh, at the end of the round, depending whether you're playing base game or if you're playing one of the expansions that um, someone could get the peace token and then you'd have to skip over them. So you can have that type of adjacency. You can have the type of adjacency where it might be an effect that 
like like Josh, like you said, like a track, you know, so it's not affecting everyone. You can have that kind of adjacency where maybe you just have to get over like a threshold. And so it's not global. Not everyone might be affected by that threshold, but you have that type of possible construct in a game as well. Yeah, so yeah that- it makes it makes me think of like trick taking games because mm. like the person when you're anytime you're following somebody and that person can mess with you, I feel like that's kind of an adjacent piece. Or we could go super literal and be like between two cities where it's literally the person next to you right. that you're building with. Right. Um, Perhaps there's a better word than adjacent, but I, I think that it makes sense for our, the purposes of our discussion here. Okay. Any, anyone have anything to add to that uh, definition? It sounds legit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, Graham, when we were talking about this before, you used a photography term that might also help uh, some people. What, what was that again? That was a depth of field or the, or area of focus uh, are the two te- te- photography terminologies. Depth of field being the idea of that when you take a picture, let's just say it's a flower that's kind of like 15 feet away. You can take a picture so that the flower's in focus, or you can take a picture so that everything's in focus. And that range, that distance range around the flower is the depth of field. And that's kind of like the areas of, of focus, the focal area of a picture is kind of like the way of thinking about what it is you're focusing on and what region of the game decision-making process you're currently in. Yeah, I think that metaphor makes a lot of sense, especially if someone is into you know photography. I myself am not, so I don't have to worry so much about that. Plus, I don't know, these days with smartphones, it's like, I don't know, Pointed at the thing I want to take the picture of. Hit the button. It'll, <laughs> it'll do it for me, you know. But but yeah, I really like that that metaphor of of trying to, you know, figure out what in that that entire uh, depth that you, or that you need to focus on. So the first question I have is: so how does the decision scale influence how a player interacts uh, with the game? And Josh, let's start with you. I think right off the bat, it it does a lot in terms of if it's the first time playing how the player can get into the game if you start playing something like we played the gallerist right you're like whoa that's a lot of stuff right right off the bat and there's a lot you have to try to consider and understand before you can even start making the decisions you want to make if that makes any sense you feel kind of lost in a lot of those like even like trajan or something at the beginning you just feel kind of like i don't know i guess i'll do this thing whereas i like games that typically have a much smaller focused kind of decision tree at the beginning that expands into that greater kind of decision, you know, scale or, you know, a lot more stuff to consider as you move, as you progress. So the gallerist is an interesting example. We'll come back to that one because I'm not, yeah, we might have a difference of opinion on that one. Of course I've played it one more than you have. So that that (laughs) might also help. But so Graham, how about you? How do you think the decision scale influences how a player interacts with the game? Uh, I think that other than the first time, which is definitely true, you could, you you can see jarring impacts, um, especially when you, if you have to change what scale you're working in, what, what your decision is based off of. Let's just say that a game doesn't really have an adjacent focus. It, that changes how you're going to play as a group. So if, if, if we have the idea of the adjacent is more of focusing on what other people are doing or, or, or what it is that they have more control over, and it's kind of next to me, but I can't really directly impact it, games that don't have that they're, they're going to have less of a, a, a direct inter- interaction between people, really. I think it helps a lot just in terms of 
as a designer, considering what what your player is thinking about at any given moment or what they have to consider. On, on so let's for example, let's say I can either I could you know grow a tree, cut down a tree, or you know build or make lumber or build a house. All those decisions are part of like say a process, so they're pretty clear, and I understand how one relates to the other. So the the scope or scale of it's not too crazy because they're all kind of part of a process or linear, and I can consume that. When you start going outside of like saying the same same situation where like I can have brick, I can have wood, I can have concrete, you know, I can have a roofing guy, I can have a plumber, and I need to build some kind of structure. And that's when I feel like the decision scale starts to get interesting for the player still, but it's a lot harder to understand where you are in your decision-making process uh, at any given point in the game, which I guess is somewhat like kind of the scope or scale of, of what you're thinking about at any given moment, if that makes sense. So you're saying like a, a non-linear uh, relationship between you know factors in the game, or, or at least something that doesn't appear to be linear um, at the moment. Right. I feel like the more... I don't want to say disconnects because that sounds negative, but the the more unique concepts that you're considering at any given moment, the harder it's going to be to make a decision. So that's why I think we see a lot of AP come from people when there's a lot of different variables in front of them. Even though as a designer, we might just think, these are all the building resources. These are all the types of buildings. Like You can take X to make Y, where other people might not necessarily see you know the underbelly or the foundation of that kind of decision tree and they're just somewhat overwhelmed initially or completely i mean in those are the people that might not want to play that type of game right and it's not just when the number of those things just in of themselves it's also let's say that i i'm planning something and i'm going for building this house and then matt you come along and you put a road there i completely forgot that you could put a road there and the, me forgetting that, me forgetting about that side, that adjacency, that other plan that's going on and that other system has made it now. So not only did I do I have all these things to consider, but now everything that I've already considered is thrown out the window. And so that that shift in because of that missed information causes a lot of AP as well. I think that's why Catan works so well is because everybody knows exactly what you can do because it's only like a handful of things. But the real depth there comes into how, where on the board and how it's playing that the actual adjacency part, the the interrelating of the different players' decisions on the board, is what brings the depth out and the conflict and all those different aspects. Because the actual decision on a given turn is, do I have enough sheep? Do I have enough of this? Somebody trade this with me so I can build my road. Oh, I don't want to build a road anymore because I'm not going to get longest road. So now I'll build a whatever the big one is, hotel. I don't know, I call it a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's been so long since I played Catan, I don't remember what the uh, the big one's called either. It's like Settlement in a City or something like that. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty, pretty sure that's Yeah. <laughs> but I like hotel. Yeah, hotel. hotel, yeah. I think Catan is, that, that's a really good example that probably everyone who's listening has probably played at least once. Or if they haven't played, they probably have a good understanding of how it works. So let's talk about the decision scales in Catan. So what's a what's a personal uh, decision scale in Catan? What do you think, Graham? 
I mean, you got the the personal would be you've got your personal hand of cards, which is that's just a set of information that's in your scope, though. When you're when you're working in Catan, you're sitting in and you're thinking you're thinking about what you are wanting to do, what you have to work with and where you can immediately go. That that would be personal. The, the issue with that is it slowly starts to get out to more having to consider. But before you consider what other people are doing, you're, you're looking and you're trying and you're hoping to get the resources that you need and then trade for them potentially get to, to fix your personal hand. I'd say that that would be the personal scope of, of Catan for the most part. I mean, you start the game right off the bat picking where you want to be, right? So yeah, that's a super personal thing of I'm sending my, which I usually hate in games when I have to make a decision that big without knowing what's happening. But you you start right off the bat like, all right, I'm going to be the rock person or I'm going to be the I'm going to be all about brick and lose for the 15th time. But <laughs> but that's also going to be adjacent, right? Well, absolutely. Just, uh, just the way that's that's structured. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's personal in the sense of how is this going to feed into the types of resources that I'll be getting at the at the beginning of the game. But it's also going to be adjacent because you have to consider uh, where the other players are going to be on the map as well. And potentially, depending on the turn order of if they've already placed or where you think they might place. It's actually a really good example of like you're having your personal decision of what you want to build and how you want to build your structures with having to constantly reevaluate the global status of the board and who is directly around you, right? It's I didn't mean to just bring up Catan, but it's actually a really, really good example for how interrelated those three different scales are in a way that isn't necessarily always in every game. Right. On top on top of that, people are rolling the dice, which are yeah, it's random, but you are you are yelling at people to roll stuff. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> you you want them to make the decision of rolling a, a five or you know whatever they can't control it but yeah yeah right and, and is there anything else in Catan that we would consider it like an adjacent scale other than um the spatial element on the hexes i think the the longest road and the knight's card is really uh, adjacent because you're talking it's usually one or two you know two people vying for that and the other two have decided or are so beaten already that they dropped out and have changed their focus. What's really interesting, though, it almost is a global thing, because if the person leading has one of those two cards, the other players want the the next closest person to to capture it most of the time. Even if it's, you know, it doesn't mean they'll win. They just want the, the winner, the leader to lose. I think that the, uh, the Monopoly card also throws in to be adjacent as well. That is, it adds the mechanic where if you're really paying attention you have to pay attention to the questions that people are asking during trade and keep track of what everyone else has even though you can't necessarily uh, use it yourself and then you have to watch out and try not to fall into someone playing that card at the wrong time and and taking your wheat for example that's interesting that you consider that adjacent because i would actually consider that global you know because you're going to be affecting everyone uh, at the time now I, i do see what you're saying about you know, you're, you're trying to kind of track what resources players have and, and things like that. And so in that in that sense, when if you know, you know, if we were playing Catan and I know that Josh has like three sheep, you know, and like I'm going to play a Monopoly card for that, that could be an adjacent effect. But in my mind, at least the way that I process that card, like I consider that global, like, you know, here you go, guys, uh, give me all your sheep, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, would, I guess I would agree 
agree with that because it is affecting everybody. I mean, the robber is straight up adjacent because you yeah. pick somebody and you go, give me stuff. Which, it's crazy that that is in a game we look at as a foundation of like Euro games that is just <laughs> a straight up take that gimme your stuff <laughs> which if like you put in any other game like would make people's brain explode see i i actually kind of consider the robber to be global as well because you can affect potentially more than one person especially later on in the game if if there's you know two or three different players that are around one hex and it feels to me like you at least if you're making a smart decision you're going to be kind of looking at the relative point totals for all the players or potentially just the resources that you think players have. That is not how you play Katen. You put it on the person that's annoying you the most. (laughs) (laughs) What were you saying about losing yet again, Josh? That that could could have something to do with it. They gang up on me at the end every time. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, like, I definitely can see how... Like you can consider the the robber adjacent. Like I, I, I wouldn't say like no, it's absolutely not adjacent. But yeah, I, I can definitely see uh, why you would put it in like that category. But then I, I can sort of also see how someone might consider it to be global as well. That's pretty interesting. How conceivably be in both of those scales at the same time, and maybe that just means that the scales are not necessarily always separate and distinct that they're depending on the game there could be uh, some overlap perhaps significant perhaps just uh, a little bit so other than Catan, which i think we kind of talked about that, that that has like a kind of a smooth decision scale would, would you guys agree uh i would i would agree i would agree yeah. especially there's no real transfer at any point in time like when you're playing what you're doing it, it, you're always in that same mindset really yeah, and it feels like even though there's a lot of overlap between the scales, like it's pretty straightforward. And you know, maybe for new players, they might need to, you know, take a couple rounds just to kind of understand exactly what's going on. And perhaps the Monopoly cards might take a full game before they really understand kind of the ramifications. But for for the most part, yeah, it seems like it's real, yeah, real, real smooth and, and straightforward from the, the beginning. So what's an example of a game where you feel it has a difficult uh, decision scale? I mean, the one that I had thought of that the scale specifically is is very distinct was the Manhattan Project. I'm not really sure how difficult it is just because there's not a huge amount of stuff. But you switch mindsets in what you're trying to do multiple times. And then the other thing is with the relatively unpredictable turn structure... Because you pull back your workers, it's not rounds. You don't have these this distinct, it's very very jagged switches. So it's my turn and I'm thinking this one, that this is going to be happening and a person pulls back their workers. Well, that just changed the entire global set without a normal turn order doing it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I would, anytime the turn order changes or gets messed with, that really screws my decision process in terms of the scale I'm thinking about. Because I'm usually focused at a point, and then that disrupts it in a way that is... And that's, that may be a little bit different kind of discussion, but it disrupts what my, my focus is at that given moment for what are the components or what are the you know variables that I'm considering to be able to make my next turn or my next choice. So, so let's talk about the kind of the three <clears throat> scales in Manhattan Project, just in case listeners aren't familiar with it. So what would you guys say would be the personal scale for the Manhattan Project? 
the personal scale would be your own personal buildings and your own personal worker pool and resources. But primarily the, 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 the one that's really the decision making is the buildings that you build that are, quote unquote, yours, your tableau. So, yeah, so your, your tableau and I guess your resources as well, right? Like trying to get uh, uranium in order to you know build the bomb cards and stuff like that. Which I yeah, guess it all stems from the the buildings, right? Yeah, your worker pool to me is is a very in that game to me is like the thing I'm constructing to be able to do all those other actions. And that I've only played it once, but I I was really focused on what is the team I'm building of people to allow me to achieve all these other sub goals. So for me, that was my that was that was the decision I kept coming back to, and that might be because I was that was what I was grabbing onto because there were so many options at a given given moment. Yeah, I think that um, we talked about the Manhattan Project on the podcast previously. I think in the Loops episode uh, specifically, and this is one of my favorite games just because I, I think it's very fascinating in how you can interact with uh, the other players. But I haven't quite thought about it yet in the kind of decision scale uh, type of a lens. So what would be an adjacent decision scale for this game? What do you think, Josh? Blowing up people, which to <laughs> me is just a personal decision. Like how many planes can I get ready to bomb you? I think, I mean, that's a direct conflict. It's I, I keep following the adjacent to be the direct kind of conflict move, but that's not necessarily always the case. It just happens to be in Catan and Manhattan Project. You have that ability inside of the game and it's the most obvious, right? Uh, Because you're affecting one person negatively. I guess also just to off that, any game where you positively affect one other player would be adjacent. Even like say New Bedford, when you plan somebody else's thing and they have to give you or you have to give them a dollar to use your building. That same kind of to me, those are very similar systems because it's me targeting one person and either giving them good or bad news based on the decision I'm making. Gotcha. Yeah. What do you think, Graham? What's a uh, adjacent decision scale in Manhattan Project? Uh, on top of bombing is the spy, the spy location. Even though the spy location itself is global, the actual All usage right. of it is very adjacent as it, like, it gives you access to things that are typically personal to other people. And then then your, uh, your pulling back of your workers is kind of a mix between all three actions and you really have to so i mean that becomes global i guess because you have to consider everything but a lot of the times you're considering um, preventing other people from taking locations and from protecting that spy location yeah i was gonna say uh the the spies yeah i definitely feel like that's the one of the adjacent uh scale part of the the design and that's what allows you to or or i should say that's almost what forces you to pay attention to what other players are building. And I think by almost including that in there and essentially forcing people to pay attention to what other players are building, that also helps you to pay attention to their resources to know kind of like how close they are to being able to end the game as well. Mm-hmm. What, uh, how, so how about a global scale? Uh, what, what would you consider global in this one, Graham? Other than just the board itself, you have the two kind of what I always consider the two interesting global decisions being building and building buildings and building the bomb. Both of those locations, when you used them, you you had to consider everything as to whether it was the correct 
time to do that for you, especially with building the bomb, because everyone's going to get to build the bomb. You're just going to get the two, get the first choice, and then you're going to get the leftovers. Right. How about you, Josh? Anything else for global? I mean, I would, I would agree. I, it's hard because I've only played it once, and I focused on just attacking people. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But recalling it, I, I really remember just that the tension between the kind of personable, the personal decision of pulling my people back to allow me to build, you know, do more actions versus do I want to attack the other player or do I want to advance myself overall? I really enjoyed. I mean, I, I don't have the game. That's why I've only played it once. I really enjoyed the different scales of decisions intermingling in that one in terms of what I had to consider to make the make the choice, which I don't always enjoy so much when they don't flow in from one or the other when they feel they didn't feel disconnected is what i'm saying so so you listed this one as a game you felt had a difficult decision scale but you said kinda do you want to kind of expound on that uh i I said kinda because i don't find it hard at at any given time there's is no jarring changes or anything you like josh was saying kind of flow along through these different scales through these different decision processes as you're playing you're going to look at this you're going to look at your buildings and i can play here or i can pull my workers back that's then you're going to adjust and you're going to look at what that's going to allow everyone else to do and then you're it's going to bring you back to another decision i mean you the game came up in the loop episode i I think as you as you mentioned earlier but due to that i'm pretty sure and this might be difficult here to me it's it's difficult for the player to make the choices because of the interconnect and flow. It's not difficult in terms of like, I don't know what to, I feel lost. It's, and I think that's why the game works. They're difficult decisions and the scale's hard to consider, but because they interrelate in a way that allows you to kind of digest what you're doing somewhat, it still, it still flows. Whereas, other games that maybe have that same kind of that difficulty but don't interconnect and don't have that flow from one to the other, then it becomes difficult in the sense that it's just frustrating. Okay, I, I see. So you're using difficult as as in challenging. Yeah, I'm using... Yeah, yeah. To me, it overcomes the challenges presenting to the player by, by having all the parts interconnected and working in a way that makes sense over time so so it doesn't result in frustration but yeah i would say it's like difficult like you know donkey kong country is difficult <laughs> or like like it's not it's not easy but it's it's enjoy it's a joy to kind of play with those decisions gotcha okay so so let me let me throw out an example of a game that that i feel has a difficult as in like frustrating decision scales and that's uh suburbia have you guys played suburbia i try to play it on my iphone or my ipad and it it just went bad (laughs) is that the tile lane with the residential and whatnot yeah you have hexes and yeah yeah you've got i forget how many i think there's four different types of categories of buildings and then you also have parks and uh lakes i think yep yeah, so so this one, this is a game that I think of a lot about decision scale because it kind of has it, it fulfills all of of the scales. So like your personal is you know so you're building your city in front of you. It's effectively your tableau, and then you have the 
adjacent because you need to look at what other players are going towards for like the various goals uh, that are out for the game and and there's some other adjacents as well and then you also have a global which is like the market and what you're going to take on your turn is going to affect all the other players and also beyond that and the thing that really frustrates me about uh, suburbia is when you get a tile that tile can trigger its own effect it can trigger an adjacency effect and that's literally adjacent as when you add the tile into your city it could trigger an effect on a on an adjacent tile and it could also trigger an effect in anyone else's city as well and it's those different decision scales that can oh, all happen yeah. at the same time Yep. Yeah, that I f- yep. yeah I find that just really uh, frustrating to to play. Anytime I find that in any one of my designs, I immediately just just nix it because because <laughs> I it gets to the point where like I can't because I want to know what my best options are, but I'm also not going to sit there and try to figure them out if someone's waiting to go. Yeah, like, <laughs> it is totally like a min maxing type players, you know, wet dream basically. But I will say that. I and and you, Josh, are clearly in the minority of our feelings for this game because right now it's ranked number sixty-six on Board Game Geek, and so and this is after almost thirteen thousand voters. So clearly, people enjoy this game. Uh, I, I am the outlier, which I will fully uh, admit. Uh, Should be fair, I haven't played it. I attempted to play it digitally, which is probably always going to go bad. So I, I, it's just that dis, just you describing that moment where like you have four or five scales to think about. Yeah, it seems like it just it it uh it kind of overflows. Like I feel like almost your any at any given time a player has like a cup they can fill up with the different scales of the decisions they can make, and at some point you're going to go over that and they're going to either you're going to lose them right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm totally with you. And like, this is a game where you want to talk about AP, like certain players. Then when it's their turn, you're, you're going to sit there for like three, four minutes, you know, while they're trying to calculate all the possible. Because I think you have. Uh, uh, do you remember Graham? Is it like four tiles on in the market? Four or five? I can't it, remember. It's. I believe that I may have been imbibing of certain drinks at the time where I played that game, <laughs> and I've only played it the one time, so my my memory is is. Oh man, we're really. I mean, we're the facts right here, guys. We yep. really yep. know suburbia. <laughs> <laughs> Take this number sixty six ranked game on Board Game Geek. <laughs> like I said, I'm clearly in the minority, but like I look at this design and I'm just like, I don't want to have this kind of you know, multiple decision scale at the exact same time going on with you know that amount of calculation. That just feels like it's a like you said, Josh. Like you know, you have a you have a cup that that can only be filled so far, and then it's overflowing, and then that's how you get the I don't know what I should do. You know, kind of reaction from uh, from players. Yeah, and the it, I don't know if suburbia does it, but games can have a lot of those different kind of decisions, but they need to lead you in a direct... There needs to be something you can grab a hold of and be like, alright, now this turn, I'm going to double down on this kind of path to victory. When they don't give you that little nudge or don't have a little carrot out there for you to grab at, that's when I feel like what you're what you're saying is when you have all those different decisions and none of them are like seem obvious or the other, depending on what you've de- decided already in the game, that's where it, it becomes irritating, yeah. I think. 
Yeah, so now you, uh, Josh, you had listed uh, the Gallerist as an example of a game that you feel has like a challenging decision scale. Uh, so first of all, Graham, have you played the Gallerist? I'm not. Okay, so uh, if you get the chance, it's pretty good. Uh, I'll say that up front. So, so Josh, it's, basic, what, it's basically fifteen games in one game. So <laughs> sometimes it feels that way. Yeah. So, so what uh, makes this challenging for you, Josh? I think I, because not all the interrelated parts are obvious obvious to you at the beginning of the game. And first of all, the Gallerist is a game where like the first two or three rounds are just you learning how everything works, right? Yeah. So. Once you learn how everything works, you almost want to be like, all right, now let's restart the game so I can start fresh, uh, which is playing it again, right? <laughs> right, um, yes. But it, it would it would really benefit from like a uh, tutorial, like a phase one where you just kind of do all the things and you learn what it is and then you go into phase two and you're white Metroid style. <laughs> but I think th- those decisions all made sense in their there once i got to that point where i could understand all of them but getting to that point where i could understand all of them was a huge hurdle right yeah it was oh but the tickets allow me to do this oh but i need to be here when that happens oh i'm on this part of the track i need to go up on that oh wait i've only sold two pieces of art and the game's over (laughs) right so when you when someone tells you you're going to do a game where you're selling art and stuff, I expect to do that a lot of times for that length of playtime. So you're making decisions thinking that's what you're going to do quite often. And to me, it just was... I don't want to say it seemed slow. It felt like I wasn't seeing the impact of my decisions quick enough for me to then consider that for my next decision. Like, it was, it was a much longer period of time before I saw the impact of my initial decisions. That's what was difficult about it. And I think that's why it would be worthy of, a, of a, another play. Again, if you bought the Gallerist, you probably are going to play it more than once because you spent $280 on, like, wood. Or maybe 80 80 whatever. Yeah. It's a lot of money. It, it is least a lot. At least it's not eighty dollars, and you're just flicking things. <laughs> so, so now to your comment about like you felt like you should be uh, selling a lot of art, uh, that could have been on me. Maybe I didn't frame it correctly when I taught it because it actually that is only one of like three things that the flavor uh, in the introduction, the rulebook tells you that you're doing. Cause that and that's why you're not. That's why the game isn't called Art Dealer. As the gallerist, you're selling, you're discovering artists, and you're also running an actual gallery. But at the beginning of the game, you're like, if you have these in your gallery, you get these points. And if you've sold these, you get these points. So those are the two things I'm trying to do, right? Because the game told me that at the very beginning. And what's funny is it gave me that direction at the start, but those things did not matter for a long time. I mean, they kind of can influence you, but... I think the other players ended up influencing me more than what those initial goals were. Yeah, so so let's talk the the three different decision scales in this game, because I think this is going to be an interesting uh, one to try to nail down, and because this is one of those games where it has a whole bunch of gears that all intermesh with one another, and so they're probably going to be a lot of fuzzy lines here. So, Josh, what do you think is, is a personal scale uh, in this game? What artist and type you want to bet on? Which is why I think they're giving you those tiles at the very beginning. Because they're leading you in a direction. That is your initial personal decision that's kind of somewhat taken away from you a little bit. You, but you, you could probably, Are you talking about the endgame uh, scoring cards that you get? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
yeah, yeah, the in-game scoring parts cards that you get at the very beginning, it kind of is leading you down that road. They're not as important as I thought they were. Maybe, maybe they are. I lost badly, so it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> I don't know what is important, and then that's maybe the crux of the problem. Because I was paying attention quite vividly because I was trying to steal stuff from it for backlot. <laughs> So I was really. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, I was. I mean, I'll tell you when I'm stealing stuff from a game. Anytime I'm playing a game. Um, <laughs> but I would say the personal decisions are, are the artists you're investing in and those tracks you're moving up on. What well, What's the money one where you like you get shifted down to the next star if you sp- like you have to spend? Is it? It's like fame or stars or it, something. It's the influence. Uh, influence. That's what it. I went yeah. heavy on influence because I felt like in the art community that would be important. So, so just for posterity here, Josh scored 115 points and was in fourth place, and third place was uh, Chris Kirkman at 136. So yeah, that. So so, so take Josh's well, comments in context, people. What well, What was your score, Matt? 190. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but but that's the equivalent of saying Matt scored ten, Josh <laughs> scored five. But but remember, I had played before, so I, I do think that people who play a game like that, you know, at least once before, are just naturally going to have an advantage just because they've seen how all the systems uh, work with one another. Yeah, they understand the, the scale of their decisions, right? Right. Yep. Which is what I didn't understand for half of the game. Once I understood it. I, I somewhat understood it. Then I then I started to feel like I was playing the game. But before then, I was just trying to. I felt like I was just trying to understand the game, which is somewhat, which is probably why I lean towards that like midweight Euroe stuff because I can understand it within the first you know round, and then I can play for the rest. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. So that's that's not at all uh, surprising. So I mean, if we played again, I'd uh, totally smoke you, but. <laughs> All right, rematch is a is a set for some point. Uh, so, what is a an adjacent decision scale in the gallerist? What do you think, Josh? I mean, you have a lot of that because you're using the tickets to move the pawns around, and anyone can move the pawns. So, to me, I mean, it's somewhat global, I guess, but you can move people's pawn out of their gallery, which we didn't we didn't play very take that because. I mean, one Matt was being nice because he knew we were already losing badly, so he didn't really care. <laughs> if we if it was close, you would have went after us, probably. Um, oh, for sure. And then you you have a really neat concept in the gallery where you're you're kind of betting on artists and trying to drive up their worth, but two people at any given time can kind of can have a stake in that worth. So you have a very clear, I'm helping this person out while I'm helping myself out. Right. Or, hey, I know Matt is good at this game because he knows how it works, so I'm going to buy the artist he's going to buy, <laughs> which I never got to do because Chris Kurtman bought every artist out from underneath me that you had every time. Oh, really? I didn't yep, notice that. Every single time. I was trying to piggyback on you so hard. <laughs> it did not. It just didn't pan out. Yeah, so that, that, I think that's a great example of an adjacency decision scale, you know, where... Someone else is investing in this thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get it on that, and and it's it's 
might affect other players later in the game, but at that moment, it's only going to be affecting, in the example of the Galarist, just only two players. Yeah, the Galarist, I would say, does a very decent job of scaling up your decisions in terms of how you're thinking about them as you play as you're playing it for the first time at least where you are focusing on yourself then you start to consider the people that are in the same kind of areas that you are competing for the same thing and then you start realizing the whole board and what the the real state of things are it just takes a long time to get there yeah so what would you say the global decision scale is then because things start running out like tickets start running out the things you can deliver those little cards whatever they are that give you like bonuses like people can take those contract cards the contract cards you kind of have these in-game points that are on a grid that you're competing for so there's a the artists themselves are all they're kind of all global until someone takes one and then they become adjacent and down to like where it maybe is just you on one of them now and left where it's now personable. So like the decisions, even with the same component or same area that you're focusing in, the scale changes throughout the game, which is really not normal in a lot of games. I wouldn't say not normal. I haven't played a lot of games where that happens a whole bunch to the same magnitude that it happened in the gallerist. So trying to consider that as a new player was really rough because what was a personal decision is now really affecting everybody or just affecting Matt or, oh, they're doing this and now it's affecting me in a different way. Before, I could just do it all day and no one cared what I did. Not to mention how you actually place workers as a whole another adjacent kind of situation because it's giving you extra turns. But there's there are so many different scales simultaneously happening with every single placement of a worker that it's somewhat overwhelming for the first half of your first game, for sure. Yeah, I definitely agree that a game like The Gallerist, yeah, is absolutely overwhelming at the beginning. I, I'm i sure there are some players out there that they just instantly kind of grok it, but... I mean, I'm, not, I'm no slouch, right? Like, I know how games work, and I right. know how to play them. Still, it was still a quite, a, quite a bit to consume. <laughs> oh, boy, there's an out-of-context quote right there. All right, so... <laughs> no one make a highlight reel of stuff I've said. It's horrible. <laughs> So, do you feel that kind of the intertwining of the decision scales within the gallerist, were they done in a way where, like, it it would help you to kind of understand how the game works, or was it more of a hindrance? That might be more personal preference than fact. (laughs) Okay. I think it was done well, but I think it could have been done better if, like, just three of those subsystems maybe didn't exist to allow the decisions that you are considering to be clearer. Because I found me knowing what I wanted to do, but not necessarily being able to deduce what that meant for the decisions I should make. To kind of do an analogy, it's like when you're playing a video game and you know what you want to do, but you can't do it with the physical medium of the controller to make the thing happen, right? That That's where it becomes somewhat frustrating or, or challenging. It could go either way, depending on if you can overcome that point in the game. And I did. I mean, I enjoyed myself. I just would I would love it a lot better if the decisions were a little bit clearer or cleaner in terms of what the ramifications would be earlier on, if that makes any sense at all. I think so. People. Yeah, I... I... I think, they're probably all like they're probably all like no one's played the gallerist. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, listeners, if you haven't played the gallerist and you like heavier games, it's absolutely worth trying it out. That's it, worth playing. Yeah, it, it. I enjoy it quite a bit, and I'm very happy that I that I backed that one on Kickstarter. 
any other examples that either of you want to bring up in terms of like either like a really smooth decision scale or more of a, a difficult or challenging decision scale? So for smooth, or Graham, you can, you can butt in here, but for smooth, anything with a clear process, which is also kind of how I end up designing stuff, stuff like Cole Baron or Panamax, like where there's a very clear goal of the thing I'm trying to do at any given moment, but I can do those things out of order, right? At different points. Because to me, that gives me kind of gives me the backbone of understanding the whole arc of, of the process of the thing I want to be trying to accomplish. So then I can quickly make decisions based on what I want to do at that moment or what's most opportunistic for me to do at that moment. My response is kind of similar in that one that's smooth for me is actually Kemet. And it's it's because the three power tile colors, they it guides you, it forces you to make a decision and then go with it. And then and then you 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 elevate that decision as the game goes along and you go through it so your decision builds upon itself. But you don't have to go and look at the fourth tier powers and figure out what you're gonna do from the very beginning because that's just too far down the line. I have not had a chance to play uh, Kemet. I, w- I would like to. I've, I've heard uh, good things about it. I'll have to bring it out sometime. I like it a lot. Yeah, I think that one is uh, also you know, pretty uh, highly rated on on Board Game Geek. Even though it is a game that that one has like a lot of direct uh, player conflict, right? It's pretty much all direct player conflict. Oh, okay. It, it's, <laughs> yeah. It is. It is a bloodbath where you upgrade to be better at bloodbathing. <laughs> yeah, and that one is ranked number sixty-seven, right after Suburbia. So let's let's uh, pump that one up uh, further, people. Okay, so all of that discussion is leading into this next question, which is: How do you know what size to make your decision scales in your game? And Graham, what do you think? Uh, that's going to depend a lot on the weight of the game that you're going for. If, if you're going for a lightweight game, really having three distinct scales might not, not might not work. And some of the games that are the most that seem to be the most popular go their their scales mesh together, kind of like we talked about Catan for so long, where we couldn't it, it, identify its scales. They're so intermeshed together. Yeah, I, I I'm starting to think that having the kind of the three scales be really intertwined might be like a real key factor to having a real uh, solid design. What do you think, Josh? What, you know, how, how would you try to figure out what sizes to make your uh, decision scales? I usually want you to be considering three things at any given turn, right? So just, just three options for you out on the board. Now, they might be personal, personal. They might be global. I don't do a lot of adjacent but mostly it's just personal and global. But I want you to do three things because it's usually easy to drop one of them. So then you only have two things you're making a decision. And then it's it people can usually prioritize one of those two things fairly quickly. And the reason why I like doing that in conjunction with the process is because to me, it, it allows you to quickly deduce what you want to do in that moment and try to be tactful about it. Long-term strategy, I feel like you need to start having some larger scale decisions in terms of that are going to affect the entire global economy and then start considering how those are going to affect the other players. But I'll be honest, most of the time I'm playing those games, I'm usually just thinking about myself anyway uh, (laughs) and then just hope I win at the end. I don't get super nuanced with trying to play off people until it's a game about playing off people. Uh, (laughs) Then I love, then that's all I can focus on. But if it's, if it's a game where like, it's like you win by getting victory points and buildings give you victory points, then I'm focusing on my tableau and what I want to do, even if there's other 
larger or scale things. But if it's a game about get Matt to say the word banana, then I don't care if I win. I just want to win that one little segment of the game, right? I'm not saying it. Sorry. <laughs> I was trying so hard to get Matt to say the word banana. Yeah, we'd have to play win lose or you know that word or code names, no. and it'd be like that's true. Monk, monkey and banana. <laughs> I don't know what the other word would be. So that's interesting, Josh. You said that you really kind of only focus on the global decision scale and the personal decision scale in your designs. Do you feel that Rocky Road Alamo does not have an adjacent? No, it definitely has an adjacent, but I think it's a result of the global and personal decisions mixing together. So I think it's a byproduct more when I'm designing than a kind of core core design principle when i start off like you have like split the loot right Mm -hmm. you're thinking about those those scale the decision scales and that way more than i would in terms of this person's targeting that person and giving this person these things where i try to just take this is the global economy this is your personal economy they're obviously gonna be in conflict because different people are gonna want different things I also like it when entire economies are even at the beginning and then based on decisions they change over time. So that's that's typically where I where I start. I don't know why I don't consider it as often. Maybe I should. I think that makes a lot of sense. Focus on the personal, focus on the global and the adjacent stuff sort of just comes into light as you're focusing on the other two. Like it's it's almost a consequence of the other two. I, th- I think you certainly can, you know, focus on the adjacent and and figure out the other two. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's any reason why you couldn't do that, but I do think it makes sense to focus on the on the global and the personal and figure out the adjacent just based on the interactions uh, that start to happen with the other scales. Yeah, which is very different than you because you with your two published games, you have an explicit adjacent mechanic almost right because you have the wombat or the dingo and you have a yeti right yeah which is somebody deciding who they want to rob like this basically like the robber like they're they're doing a thing that's targeting a specific group or subgroup of the entire global scale which i haven't put anything like that in any one single one of my designs and i don't i don't know why maybe it's just because i don't know how to do it (laughs) that's probably why the zamboni's coming (laughs) Oh, right. I forgot about the Zamboni. (laughs) I'm going to love if I can run people over with the Zamboni in your figure skating game. That's going to amuse me. At the moment, the Zamboni does something with tiles. (laughs) (laughs) How do you consider it? Do you consider consider the adjacent part of stuff? Uh, I mean, I do, but I mean, the game's... That I, I mean, I'm not published, but the games that I've worked on, the Shadow State is heavily adjacent. And then I'd say that Lightspan is also heavily adjacent. They have a lot of, of that thought process and watching other people and working temporarily or with or against specific other people in the scale of the game. And the games were designed to do that from the very beginning. How'd you come about to that decision? Like, did you just set off, like, I want to make sure people have to work together in some instances? How would I do that? That was the case for Lightspan. And then the case for the Shadow State was I want people, I want people to try to be sneaky and have to hide what they're doing. 
and by the nature of that, you you are trying to figure out what other people are doing at the same time. So I mean, so that that's that's adjacent. But yeah, I I specifically sat down wanting to force people to interact with each other in a way that changed their interaction each round. See, that's crazy to me because like for me, I'm like I can't self play test. I think that's why I don't do any. I don't depend on that because it's really hard for me to self play test in a way that isn't I'm focusing my personal and then the global's changing. So I just take it out of the equation because I don't know how to I don't know how to develop it when I'm by myself. Well, I'm cheating because both of those games that I've mentioned I've been developing with Cameron, so they're not by myself. That's oh, you're right. A cheater. Cheater. <laughs> so Sluice the only one that's by myself and that has no adjacent or it's, <laughs> I mean I guess it's it's two player game, so it's all adjacent. <laughs> yeah, global and adjacent happen to be the same thing in that game. Yeah. Well, and this is a little off topic, and we should probably do a playtesting episode at some point. But I think the way that you do solo playtesting and focus on adjacent type effects is to have dummy players that you're playing as and give them personas. And so, for example, like this player, this player is going to be real cautious. This player is going to be crazy and just do something random. This player is going to be super aggressive, things like that. And then when you are playing those dummy players with the personas, so it's not just you uh, playing those dummy players, then you can start to see some of the interactions that happen at the adjacent scale that you might not see if you were doing solo dummy playtesting uh, all as yourself. That's, that's what not I a do bad, anyway. Yeah, that's not a bad thought at all. Yeah, because your game, you know, a lot of the, your designs have that decision scale in terms of like who you're considering as a prominent feature of, of the experience. And I'd be lying if I said that I had like explicitly considered that kind of scale, because until we started talking about it for this episode, I hadn't really you know looked at designs in this lens. So once again, just like when we did the loops episode, I wasn't looking at you know, designs from that lens, and now I am. And of course, now that I know all this stuff, and I look at it in a very different way, and I'm like, oh man, what am I doing? This is... <laughs> <laughs> now, I know too much now. Oh, now, now everything gets uh, micro-analyzed. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, the, uh, the last question that we have here for this episode is, do certain weight games and gender having a larger... Uh, possibly a more complex decision scale, or does weight not have any factor at all uh, in the size of the, of the scale? What do you think, Josh? I would say it doesn't, and the reason why is play code names, hmm. because the level of the scale of those decisions is phenomenal and is just crazy because it's the human brain trying to decide what scale to play to, right? You as the player now have to decide what's the scope of the decisions you're gonna you're gonna make or the scale at which you're gonna try to are you gonna do something that's global, very personal to them, something you know would relate to that specific group or people. So and that that game is light by all accounts, but in terms of what you have to consider to make a decision of saying one word and a number, it's up there with the galleries for me in terms of all the possibilities, right? And there's no, there's nothing holding my hand. There's no mechanics holding my hand to be like, you probably can get tickets. That's good. Go up in this, go up this, you know, 
go go up this track. That's probably pretty good. Can't be bad, but there's probably pretty bad clues that you can give in code names, and they're hilarious. And that's also why it's a genius design because when you fail, it's fun. That's very interesting because you're, you're right. You won't get any feedback about your decision until after you've already made your decision, and then you're like, whoops. I didn't see that word out there that they are misinterpreting a part of my clue. Crap. Yeah, you know, hopefully hopefully it wasn't the uh the assassin. It's one of the few games where the feedback based on your decision is probably the most fun part of the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you think, Graham? Do you uh, anything to add uh, or is that pretty much what your thoughts as well? I was actually going to be saying that I think that time to play has a bigger impact on the scale but once again i mean codenames kind of destroys that argument so um (laughs) well in general i would say that the the time has a large a large component of i think i think it's a lot more to do with time to play than than the weight of the game for sure though if if you've got a game that is going to take 15 minutes it's really hard to get a a deep meaning in all three or even really having just just changes between the three it might it might have one or or something of that nature but yeah there's code names so (laughs) (laughs) of course you know code names is like the ultimate outlier uh as well (laughs) yeah it's a complete outlier (laughs) you don't even play to like for to win really you're just playing Wow, <laughs> it depends on the group, of course, but uh, but yeah, code names is what what hasn't been said about code names. Design is just phenomenal. Anything else that we want to add about decision scales? I would say when you're when you're designing, and I try not to write down what I have to consider when I'm like self kind of evaluating and playtesting and kind of designing and trying to keep it in my mind instead of just saying these are the six things I can do. It's on a piece of paper right next to me, mostly because I can try to start to have that. Where's the limit for me in terms of what I'm trying to consider? And is that going over my personal limit? If it is, then it's not the kind of game I'm going to be successful in making. I'm the designer. I want to be able to con- understand the ramifications of all the decisions I'm making at any given moment. So that kind of self-evaluation. Okay. Uh, anything you want to add, Grant? I had actually been thinking earlier that I, that kind of in relation to this is I really wish I could do eye tracking on playtesters mm-hmm. on where they were looking when so that I could see what is in what part of the game, what is in what part of the scale and when they're considering things. And the reason is for that is because I have several things, specifically in Lightspan, that people just forget about. And it's because the game moves away from being able to use them and then back. And so we we had mentioned at one point of moving from one type of scale to another. If you then you then go backwards and, and the flow is jarring, you lose stuff. But I think that the information gets lost if scale transfers are done wrong just as much as if the scale is just so overwhelming so when you say a scale is done wrong do you have an example in a published game that that listeners might be familiar with go ahead and name some published games that you don't like go ahead (laughs) (laughs) if not that's okay because i can give an example so I'm working on a game called Tsunami at Yeti Beach, which I have mentioned on the podcast previously. It is the thematic sequel to Avalanche at Yeti Mountain. And it was sort of working and sort of not. And it's, you know, right now it's like at that weird stage where like it's, there's something in there, but 
it's just not shining yet. And the way that it was working, and it may or may not continue, well, it definitely won't uh, continue to work this way. I'm just not quite sure how it's going to evolve yet. But it was a, once again, a simultaneous card selection game, a little bit sort of like Get Bit, where everyone has the same hand of cards, and you will be selecting a card and revealing it at the same time. And if multiple players would choose the same card, they would cancel each other out, and when the Yeti would move to that location on the beach, he would get really confused because too many people are yelling for help, and he would throw all the people in that section back into the water. As opposed to if only one player would play a card for a certain section of the beach, the Yeti would come to that location, and then that player's cubes, if they had the majority, they would get to move up at that location, and or if whoever had the majority rather they would get to move up it could be the player who played the card it could be someone else if the player who played the card did not have majority one of their cubes would get to move up to the next section it was all about trying to get out of the water onto the beach and off the beach into the hills and off the hills to get onto the cliffs of extreme happiness where you would finally be uh safe so something that josh identified guess i don't know maybe a month or two ago now was and it's what kind of led down to this whole decision scale uh, kind of uh, of thinking was on your turn when you were trying to decide on what card to play you had to think of your own personal scale which was where all your cubes were out uh, on the six cards at the moment in the six playing areas because you could uh, choose one through six you had to consider what other cards players had already played so you had a lot of adjacent effects uh, or, or adjacent scales there. So if you would see that, you know, if Graham had already played his two, and when you play a card, it's going to be out uh, for the next round. So everyone would know, hey, if I play a two, at least Graham can't, you know, match me. So that's at least one player that could not mat- uh, play that two. So I might be a little safer, you know, playing a two. And you also had to think uh, a different type of adjacency because you could move a cube from card to card after you would call the Yeti to your card and then uh, move cubes around. So you had that sort of adjacency, which was also feeding into global because that would affect basically the entire state of all the cubes on the board. And what happened was on your turn, you're kind of bouncing back and forth between those three scales in a manner where they're not really intertwined and it became really uh, jarring like uh, like uh, Graham had said uh, earlier in the episode and so you know total uh, props to Josh for recognizing like that's kind of the the crux of of the issue with that with that current design and why it was a little frustrating to play and why it didn't click with some players even though you know they would say that they would enjoy it but you could kind of see like I don't really know what I'm doing in this game, and it's not really clicking, even though it's you know not a long game and it's not super super complicated or anything like that. Especially for a game where <laughs> you're going to pick a card and then you're going to uh, reveal it at the same time. So that's kind of the uh, the genesis of the this entire episode. Uh, now that we've gone through uh, the entire episode, so there there's your lesson, everyone. Try not to mix your decision scales in a manner where it's really jarring because it does not work very well at all yeah and if you're play testing something just tell people why your brain hurts <laughs> that's all i did <laughs> yep that was good and and like i said i don't have a solution yet but at least that is 
uh, at the very least, that is part of the issue, if not the issue entirely. All right, that is going to be our discussion about decision scales. Hopefully this has been a really interesting uh, concept uh, for you to listen to. If you have any other comments or clarification, or perhaps you just completely disagree with what we said, come on out onto our guild and let us know. If you go to podcast.gdmnc.com, that'll take you to our guild on BGG, and and you can tell us how much you love the episode or how how much uh, full of crap that we are. All right, so let's go into our uh, GD of NC news segment. And Josh, do you have something for this segment? I do have something. As of today, I have signed Milkman with Greater Than Games and Dice Hate Me Games. So... Everybody get excited and pumped. Yay! Play test it a lot more. Yeah! And are you allowed to share that news? I am. Excellent. Congratulations, (laughs) yeah. I asked right before the podcast if I was allowed to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, uh, I guess, a little over a year in uh, sort of trying to figure out whether that was going to get signed. Uh, So that's awesome news. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm ex- I'm excited to bring it bring it to the world. Got to bring that dairy. You know what I mean? More dairy. More dairy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So are you gonna stop it too, or do you need a dairy trilogy? Oh, you gotta have cheese, baby. That's... You know, I mean, I got a mechanic for it. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be good. <laughs> okay. Well, that's gonna wrap up our episode then. Uh, Josh, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they do so? At Joshua J Mills on Twitter. Or at Joshua J. Mills on everything. Send me an email if you want to. If you could figure out who I use. Okay, I was born in 81, so you could probably deduce it. Um, <laughs> otherwise, just hit me up on Twitter and call me names in the guild. You heard him, folks. <laughs> All right, Graham, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they do so? They can get me on Twitter at Feathermore, F3-T-H-E-R-M-O-O-R-E. That's going to be the easiest, and that's also what I am on, on Board Game Geek. Did somebody play some RPGs at some point? That's your name? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, don't you remember uh, why that is, that's uh, Graham's name? It's, yeah, so basically if you were ever fragged by Feathermore, you, can, you know who to blame now. Again, hit him up on Twitter and on the guild. Call him names. <laughs> Call me names. <laughs> All right. And if you would like to... Uh, contact me you can do so at matt wolf with an e on the end of wolf on twitter and same username on board game geek and as i mentioned uh, earlier if you've enjoyed this episode or if you didn't enjoy it and just want to have a conversation about it uh go on our guild and once again that is podcast.gdofnc.com which will redirect you to our guild on board game geek and we also have a Twitter account for the group, which is at GD of NC, which of course stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. Uh, please review our podcast in iTunes, which it would be super awesome and would help with visibility for the show. And that is going to do it for this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Remember to examine your scales properly, and we will see you next time. Yay! <laughs>